Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming bright and early to uh, Somerset House to the EI Club breakfast. Um, just to explain for those of you who haven't been before, I'm Julia Hobsbawm, the founder of Editorial Intelligence, and we believe that it is more than just stimulating and fun to come to breakfast like this. We believe that this kind of uh, drip feed of constant eclectic learning is going to become recognised and rated as fantastically valuable to survival in this era when we're swamped by a tsunami of information. So you are, in fact, in class, in rows in front of us, but you just don't know it. Um, and this particular format developed entirely organically when we thought, what if we just asked three incredibly interesting, eclectic people to say what is on their mind... And then we discovered that, oddly, a conversation could often ensue which connected aspects of what they'd said. So we're going to see whether that works today or whether they're just going to speak marvellously in a standalone way. And we have um, a fantastic trio of speakers. Uh, the person who will speak first is Parag Khanna, who is probably the description global citizen was invented for Parag. I mean, he's a geostrategist. He's been um, gr grown up in variously United Arab Emirates, New York and Germany. He's never really off a plane. He says he's just arrived from Iceland where it's warmer than it is here. Um, he has more uh, glamorous, serious attachments to global think tanks than most of us, including the New, New America Foundation and the European Council on Foreign Relations. And uh, he is sitting next to Michelle Hansen, who is one of Britain's uh, best loved and best known writers and commentators. Um, uh, my husband didn't look up from reading her autobiography for about a week uh, and kept looking up and saying, God, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And uh, she is um, somebody for... With, who, who manages to sort of do politics with understated humour, which is very, very difficult to achieve. Somebody who does politics uh, not with humour but with great panache and psychology is on my left, is, uh, or psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic. I, one immediately gets bogged down by what is a true and untrue definition and interpretation thereof. But suffice to say that Gabrielle Rifkin on my left is uh, one of the most distinctive... Um, peace negotiators using effectively group therapy techniques for peace, sort of, and she's also going to talk about that. So, they are going to say what is on their mind in roughly seven minutes each, and we're going to start with Parag. Will you please say what is on your mind today? Thank you, Julia. Thanks for the inspiring uh, surroundings uh, as well. Well, I think on the heels of Facebook's IPO, it's a perfect time to declare that the information age is dead and over. Uh, doesn't that make perfect sense? It's only been the largest IPO in the history of the IT industry, but yet here I am to declare that the information age uh, is over. Just look at their share performance yesterday, after all. Um, actually, that was a joke. The, the argument about the passage of the information age actually has nothing to do with Facebook per se. It has to do with the evolution of technology. Uh, throughout history, we have moved through phases in socio-technical relations, and that's just a fancy way of saying we began with the Stone Age, we went through the Agrarian Age, the Industrial Age, the Information Age. We should be thinking about what comes next. Now, the Stone Age didn't end because the world ran out of stone. The Information Age is not passing because we're running out of information. It's precisely because everything is becoming information that we have to think about what comes beyond a world in which we conflate IT with all technology. Because we've neglected, actually, in our discourse, certain other areas that are starting to become extremely important for the future of our economy and our society. Biotechnology, nanotechnology, uh, advanced materials, uh, artificial intelligence, robotics, alternative energy, so many different areas of technology that we've been neglecting as we've been focusing on Facebook. But if you look at what's happening today, 
I believe this information age is, tra is transitioning. We're on its threshold, and we're entering what I call the hybrid age. I call it the hybrid age for a very simple reason. Information technology is hybridizing, is merging with these other uh, sectors and technologies and scientific disciplines that I just mentioned. Have you ever heard of biomechantronics? Maybe not. Well, that's what happens when you can combine biology with, mechanic, with mechanical engineering and electrical engineering. The result is prosthetics that are more advanced or more robust and, and more capable than our own human limbs. Have you heard of synthetic neurobiology? Well, this is what happens when you're able to turn uh, DNA code into data and then fabricate through synthetic enzymes actual um, actual uh, DNA strands and code which you can insert into the body, various proteins that you can insert into the mind to alter our brain chemistry. So those are just two of quite a few examples of entirely new fields that are emerging that, uh, that occur as a result of everything being digitizable or, or, or turned into data and then combinable. And we're entering this hybrid age in which IT combines with all of these other areas and hence it's, uh, it, it is, it is the, the, the hybrid age. So the hybrid age is with, with, together with IT, but beyond IT at the same time. Now, I think this new vocabulary forces us to adjust how we think about other aspects of our collective uh, social and political evolution, which is why the kind of one-word punchline, uh, which, which, which I thought of for today's conversation, is what I call geotechnology. Because, again, going back a couple of hundred years, we've lived under a geopolitical paradigm. Geopolitics is a 19th century discipline invented by Europeans to help think about issues like natural resource endowments and population size and how you aggregate those, translate them into military power projection capability to dominate space. In the late 20th century, about 100 years after we began uh, after we understood our own geopolitical situation, there was a realization that economics actually matters here. And so hence the term geoeconomics was coined. And that's actually relatively recent uh, coinage. And with geoeconomics, you don't think as much about just military balance of power and power projection capability. You think about things like terms of trade, balance of payments, um, uh, uh, foreign direct investment, capital stock, these kinds of things. And that indeed matters a great deal. Anyone who looks at the, at the global uh, uh, sort of geopolitical landscape today always points to the size of China's economy as a major factor. Uh, but indeed, I think we're already moving past the geoeconomic paradigm as well towards geotechnology. Let me uh, give you a simple illustration. Raise your hand if you know how many nuclear weapons China has. Right. Now, what if I told you it has not many more than it had about 30 years ago? Did you call China a superpower 30 years ago? You didn't, did you? Mostly you think it's a superpower because of its economic size, right? That's why people refer to a G2 in the global economy, even though I don't think that's correct. Now, how did China acquire that economic clout, which it can then invest in its military? Because when it opened its economy three decades ago, it chose a sector. It chose manufacturing. It came, it devoted its human capital to that sector. It acquired the basic technologies, and that is how it built up huge trade surpluses, current account surpluses, and foreign exchange reserves. And now that, that, is, that is what made it a geoeconomic power. And now it can invest those into, um, into the military as well. So it began with the technology. China isn't a superpower today because of the number of nuclear warheads it has. It's a superpower today because of what it chose to do with technology 30 years ago. The other thing that it's doing right now is not just buying aircraft carriers and building more nuclear weapons, which it's barely doing. It's actually investing as much as possible in these new hybrid age sorts of technologies that I mentioned at the beginning. China's 12 five-year plan, which was uh, released last year and is a much discussed document, is to me not just an economic statement. To me, it's the most robust national security doctrine, the most um, respectable national security doctrine in the world today. It's far more sophisticated than anything produced by the Pentagon or by the British MOD. In the Western world, we recycle our military doctrines every year or two to go with the flavor of the month and to respond to the media. One week, it's counterinsurgency. The next week, it's something else. What China has decided to do is to invest $1 trillion over the next five years in six advanced technology areas. And they're the ones I mentioned earlier, biotechnology, advanced manufacturing, nanotech, and so forth. And what it's going to do with those things is to attempt to innovate. 
Now, China has not invented any of these areas. There's a big difference between invention and innovation. The Western world still has a tremendous advantage when it comes to invention. But innovation can be done by anyone who seizes upon the basic technologies and skills and can commercialize and apply them to markets. China is attempting to innovate in these advanced technology areas like never before. And that means that, that those innovations are going to eventually be translatable into strategic leverage. Because just like in the 1970s and 1980s, it begins with the technologies you choose. And that's why those are the leading sectors, of the leading technological sectors, which lead to economic gains, which translate into strategic leverage. And that's what I mean by geotechnology. What it means then is we need to focus not just on the balance of power, which is a superficial measurement of your military size today. And think about the balance of innovation, which is a, a lead indicator of how wealth is going to accrue in an economy and how that technology is going to be applied to strategic purposes. China today is, is, is demonstrating that its balance of innovation, that the balance of innovation is far more even than the balance of power. And that's why I think geotechnology matters more than geoeconomics and matters more than geopolitics. And that's my thought of the day. Thank you. Thank you very much. I just want to ask you, um, when you say there's a, that innovation and invention is really what's coveted most, how much of that is strategic and how much of it is technological? In other words, are we looking at the latest, you know, the rise of Samsung, for example, and the fall of Nokia? Is that significant because it's about the technological developments? Or do, are you saying that innovation also is beyond technology? It's most certainly both. I mean, if you look at the solar power industry and, and the, the giant scandal in the United States around the company Solyndra, which received a lot of federal support and then went, went bankrupt, part of the reason was that they had chosen, if you will, the wrong solar technology. Whereas Chinese solar companies were working with a much more uh, a low-cost, efficient, commercializable, replicable kind of model. So the actual core technology itself, the science, matters a great deal, for sure. And then also which companies are the best at commercializing it and, ad and adapting it uh, to markets in the face of price competition and other sorts of things. So, so both. And just one other question from me before we move on to Michelle. I mean, of course, you know, I love the claim information age is dead and blaming Facebook for it. But I mean, is there, it seems to me that what Facebook did do is un unleash this new era of connection, which is, not, which is not dead. I mean, would you not say that the globalized world is mm -hmm. a result partly of the technology which has enabled people to at least attempt to be Absolutely, continuously Absolutely, without a doubt. And, and I view these ages and eras as cumulative, not as substitutive. And that's why I said the Stone Age didn't end because <laughs> the world ran out of stone. Um, so we still do, in a way, live in the information age. I was just being, being glib. But, but, uh, but the only quibble I would have is that I don't think Facebook is really responsible for that connectivity. I mean, the internet predates Facebook, per se, as a company. I mean. I would credit you know, Google and other players far, far more. Uh, those that, that uh, invented sort of email and browsers and the other uh, protocols that allow for data sharing online. Facebook is as large a company as it is, as, as much mind share as it occupies, is, in my opinion, if you measure you know, its um, impact on, I don't know, actual you know, important aspects of human life, uh, correct me if I'm more, everyone can have their own opinion, but to me it's a relatively trivial phenomenon, believe it or not. Uh, that, that, that's my view. I think Google is an infinitely more important uh, company. Okay, well, that, well there's about sort of seven entry levels for discussion at that, on, just on Parag's contribution alone. Thank you very much. Michelle, moving swiftly on. <laughs> What's on your mind today? Um, um, well, I'm going to talk in praise of the innocent outsider. Um, I'm here to plug the vital role of the innocent outsider. Now that the state of affairs here seems to be growing madder and more complicated, I think we need more innocents and naives to express their outrage and astonishment, uh, to highlight the wrongs and injustices being visited upon the unfortunate public in the hope that it may be a step on the way to a better world. As my shining example of the innocent outsider, I'd like to use the king of the giant Brobdingnagians in Gulliver's Travels. He liked to put the tiny Gulliver on the table at mealtimes so that he could entertain the diners with stories from his own country, England. This was the king who famously pronounced the bulk of our natives to be the most 
pernicious race of little odious vermin that nature ever suffered to crawl upon the surface of the earth. And that was before he asked Gulliver to describe something admirable that his countrymen had discovered. Gulliver proudly chose to describe gunpowder, which we discharged into some city, which would rip up the pavements, tear the houses to pieces, burst and throw splinters on every side, dashing out the brains of all who came near. The king was horrified and assumed that this was the idea of some evil genius. What would he think of tridents, germ warfare, and weapons of mass destruction? Michael Foote, who wrote a preface to this 1967 edition of Gulliver's Travels, suggests that it was the most powerful of pacifist pamphlets. And that isn't all. The king was also horrified by Gulliver's description of our art of government and abominated all mystery and intrigue in a minister. No improvements there then, although Lord Leveson is trying his very best. We have um, our innocent observers here now, Occupy protesters, UK Uncut, CMD, complaining of some glaring social injustice or other, but they're just swatted away like flies. Annoying, but nothing more. They're dismissed with a sneer, as naive and simplistic by those in command, especially if they're banging on about inequality, colossal greed, social injustice, bankers' bonuses, and our enormous and growing wealth gap between rich and poor. Up come the wealthy and powerful with that odd phrase, politics of envy, to make anyone demanding fairness feel small, grasping, and bitter. I know because I've tried it. Even now, if I praise socialism, I still feel as if I've stuck my head above the parapet and could easily be shot down for being so naive and idealistic. Idealism now seems to mean weedy wet, and naive means silly. I'm disappointed to find that naivety is considered almost worse than corruption. No one thinks of corrupt as silly. A corrupt person is usually thought of as being rather clever. They pulled a fast one and very likely got away with it. Tax evaders and bonus grabbers are still doing rather well, thank you. And most criminal financiers are still free as birds. I heard Stephen Hester not long ago on the radio brushing away a question about his great wealth. <coughs> to him, it was an irrelevance. He and his lot seem unaware of the boiling fury they've stirred up among the common people. They're lucky that guillotines haven't been erected, or at least stocks all along the center of the Holloway Road and other high streets. <coughs> Disappointingly, the presenter let Stephen get away with it. But he and his kind must keep sneering in order to retain the status quo and cling to what they think is their entitlement. To do this, they also need to complicate matters so that no one can tell what's really going on. Just look at the language of the markets and national curriculum if you want things clear as mud. Swift, my hero, used to read his work out to the servants to make sure they understood it. That's the last thing the elite appear to want nowadays by cunningly muddling clarity and simplicity with naivety and silliness, again, the financiers and educationalists can more easily mystify and dispense with their critics. Hardly anyone has the time or energy to try and work out what they're really up to. I asked a friend who exactly the markets were, and she hadn't a clue, but she knew that they were in charge and unstoppable. They're like some sort of Quatermass monster taking over the planet, bringing death and destruction in their wake, and folly. I sometimes like to imagine Swift coming back as the sharpest of all outsiders for a look at what's going on here. What would he make of the wealthy ordering the paupers to tighten their belts? Would he think it iniquitous and bonkers that McDonald's is the official food for the Olympic Games? And wonder what on earth we are playing at with our aircraft carriers and laugh like a drain at Steve Hilton's ideas. Tragically, despite all Swift's efforts, nothing has changed much. Although we do have greatly improved sewage systems and hygiene, which would have delighted him. We still haven't managed to, quote, reduce the whole pretentious bunch to their proper stature, which was his aim in life. But that just gives us all the more reason to continue his good work and press on with our efforts to look at current goings on as if we just arrived from another planet to take the role of the innocent outsider whenever possible and express that point of view, reduce the status quo to absurdity so that one day, hopefully, everyone else will see the light and tolerate it no longer. Oh, so, thank you. Well, 
for those of you listening to this on podcast, there's something very funny that happens live in the room when fascinating people speak, which is everybody cranes forward, and that's happened twice already. I would like Michelle to ask you and Parag just for one minute to see whether there's any common ground between the hybrid state geo technologically and politically that Parag is talking about and some kind of hybrid state where your unempowered, innocent, naive people might feel a bit included because you present a portrait of complete exclusion. Is that what you feel that where you're coming from is? Not complete exclusion, but I think you have to sort of put yourself outside and exclude yourself and then look in and see if you can sort of detach yourself so you can see more clearly. Otherwise, you get completely involved and messed up with it and muddled. And so much is happening. Like, as you say, so much is happening. So much is mixed up. So much is hybrid. You can't really see the wood for the trees. And um, I just sometimes, if you look at something in a straightforward way, you do get accused of being rather simplistic and silly. But in fact, things are much more straightforward than they seem. Some things are quite obviously wrong. And people will go to any extent and burble any sort of rubbish around them so that you'll think they were, were right or perhaps you don't quite know what you're talking about or you know you haven't read this, you haven't read that, you don't understand this, you don't understand that. Well, you know, I remember once um, right at the beginning of the national curriculum when I, I was teaching reading the English syllabus which had a 71 word sentence which was absolutely nonsensical, nonsensical and I ran, rang up to find out what it meant and asked the woman, you know, who wrote this, and she wouldn't tell me. And then she said, oh, it was a board who wrote it, and it was complete and utter non... This is English, which is meant to be a form of communication, which is meant to teach people something and help them to understand. It's not to make you think, what the hell's going on? And what it does is mystify you, like all these other complicated mechanisms and, and, and instead of thinking this is a load of rubbish you think I'm very stupid I don't understand what this means and I think this really do, is, is very important but Parag you're not talking about a state of confusion really are you you're talking about progress mm -hmm. so I mean I think Michelle is a little bit right as well actually mm -hmm. that this is a feeling that people mm -hmm. are expressing mm -hmm. and that voice isn't being heard but equally I think there is this rather exciting meta change going on. So There's, how do you square these two Yeah, We like positions? to, people who work on technology like to say that, that uh, it's, it is itself neutral. It can heat homes, uh, nuclear power can heat homes or destroy nations, right? It's, it's what you do with it. The one word I didn't use was empowerment, but I certainly could apply it to, to, to what you're saying. And, and I'm constantly amazed at the ability of technology to empower people who do feel excluded and marginalized. If you look at the, the, the mobile phone penetration around the world and the, 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 Im, the impact on daily livelihoods that that has had, or to take it, bring it right back here to home, to even the Western world where there are clearly many, many marginalized, even the majority of people who feel excluded from centers of power, but technology actually uh, is creating opportunities for them to set up their own alternative economic systems. If you look at the rise of community banking, community-based mortgage systems, and so forth around the United States, if you look at virtual currencies and bartering uh, networks where people who don't have a lot of money are able to simply barter tasks and skills and services with each other, they can understand what they're trading. They have disintermediated large financial institutions, and that's actually something that's growing in prominence every single day. And that is very much based on technology. People being able to build economic relations with people you've never met and on the basis of trust in the way that you would have in a local village, but doing it online and not having to, to route your relationships or pay a fee right, to, to these centers of power whom one doesn't trust, that's really remarkable. And it actually wouldn't be possible without technology. Okay, so hold that thought because we're going to move to Gabrielle, but then... I'd like to come back to this sense that there is what I would call the people in the global green room, you know, cutting about the place, having the big ideas, and what Michelle is talking about, which is the rest of us. Is that right, Michelle? Yes, it's really the gap between rich and poor that I'm talking about, and I think that, uh, as an example, 
Just one quick example. Yeah. Uh, this latest idea that uh, you have families have to have lessons in how to bring up children. And that there are going to be messages flashed through their mobile phones and on the internet. Uh, it's just a nonsense. You know, some woman in a council estate who's battling with three children with nappies and crap and everything, she's not going to be putting on her, I mean, she's not going to be putting on her email and looking on her mobile for messages and instructions in the middle of all that. It's just another world. Although I think, you know, technology is great. I'm not blaming technology. Yeah. It's given, you know, opportunities to people in Africa who can't, you know, communication and everything. But, but it's just this ridiculous gap where the people who are organizing don't seem to know what the people underneath are actually doing with their lives. And, and the people underneath are then becoming excluded because they, you know, by wealth and by, and then there's all this rubbish language that sort of separates them from what's going on. You, know, you can't really tell what's going on. And you haven't got the time or the energy, you're too exhausted. Well, thank you. Gabrielle, I'm sure you deal with a lot of rubbish language in your neck of the woods. Tell us what's on your, mm. on your mind. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking there's a whole day seminar in this because, what, because Michelle is really talking about the human face and the relationships and people and what really goes on and that perhaps the link with technology and the danger is that we end up on one side. So technology can be about empowerment, but unless people are actually factored in, then we're really messing up. Um, and I think that is what has drawn me into my work in the Middle East. What I'm really interested in is the link between people, human motivation, why people behave in certain ways, and the grand game of realpolitics, and how this actually sits together. Because we seem to have failed when we look at things just through one lens. Um, now, I wanted to start today um, perhaps by drawing you in a bit. I want to talk about how we get into the mind of the enemy. And I wanted to ask you, perhaps even just to think for a moment, that when you left today, I would imagine in this room, one or two of you had a sharp word with a child, or even your partner, maybe people in this room are in the midst of a, di a divorce where it's kind of nasty and bitter, or that you have a, relation, uh, you've a relationship with um, your ex-partner where you're absolutely convinced that it was their fault they got it all wrong. Don't ask them to put their hand up. <laughs> <laughs> Just think quietly on this one. I think my point is that it's I think we have a natural propensity to want to always blame the other person. It is much easier, much safer. The idea that we become self-reflective and ask ourselves, what part did we play? Did we contribute to this? Now, this is true at the interpersonal level, and I still practice as a psychotherapist, and I see it in my consulting room every day. And I can be equally as guilty of it. We do not really want to look at what part we play. But I think we can also transpose these ideas onto the international stage. And the ability of governments to look at themselves and to ask what part are they playing in any kind of conflict. Now, if we take just two examples, Afghanistan and the Iraq war, I think I'd be generous enough to say unknowingly that we look at things through a partial lens, assume that we are right, and then impose our foreign policy accordingly. Things are usually a lot more complex than this, and maybe sometimes we're part of the mess. Now, the essential point I want to make is that, like it or not, we have to get into the mind of the enemy. I'm actually writing a book called The Fog of Peace, why it's so difficult to make peace, and what 
influenced me, and I'm sure many of you saw it, was the film The Fog of War, and in which Robert McNamara, who was the architect of the Vietnamese War, in which three million people died, Vietnamese, and 58,000 Americans, um, and he later said in his wisdom, we didn't understand empathy. We didn't know how to get into the mind of the enemy. We were fighting different wars, he later said. We were fighting the Cold War. They were fighting for independence. And what, what huge mistakes we have made because we do not have the capacity to get into the mind of the other side. Now, I'm not saying that we, if we do this, we will necessarily like what they think or how they think. In fact, we will probably find it extremely unsavory. But the point is that we then need to make a strategic calculation. If we get into the mind of the enemy, can we make some better choices? And what seems to have happened is we position ourselves much more from a righteous position of thinking we're right. And actually, that's often why we so mess up. Um, something I've been very involved in behind the scenes, probably almost for the last decade, is Iran's relationship with the West. And as you all know, that we've been very close to um, war and possibly even a regional war. And if you've been following it, there is some kind of shift taking place. And we've got talks in Baghdad on starting tomorrow. And there's actually a different mood music for all kinds of reasons um, in terms of the, the calculations that all sides are making. And without being too optimistic or even one can say naive, there is a chance that things might begin to change. Um, and I think, in part, is up until now, the way the negotiations have been constructed, is the West has assumed the E3 plus 3, who are the negotiators, that it has more power and then can therefore um, set the terms. And one of the issues has been, uh, of course, the real concern is about whether Iran gets nuclear weapons. Um, and um, one wants the negotiations need to... Um, find an end game which recognizes, uh, which actually stops weaponization. That has to be the um, purpose of the negotiation. But that maybe there's some kind of deal in between. And, you know, this is not a nice regime. It's got massive human rights abuses. Many of the people I know and have worked with have, have been imprisoned. However, in again, in terms of strategic calculation, if you get into the mind of the enemy, does it make a difference? And one of the key things in the negotiation will be, we'll have to get into the mind of the Supreme Leader. The Supreme Leader, actually underneath it, believes that the aim of the West is regime change. Well, maybe it is the, one of the intentions and hopes of the, hopes of the West. However, it is probably a better calculation to say what happens internally in Iran will be their decision and how changes take place. So if we come from entering the security anxieties, perhaps for them about regime change, and then we have to go into the mind of the Israelis. What, what are their security anxieties? And some of their existential fears about threats and their own survival. There, of course, there are multiple factors that will affect decision-making. But I think my point is that dealing with the power relationships and the geopolitics and not actually addressing some of the fears and insecurities means in many ways that we get very, very stuck. Um, so, just to weave back, and um, what was my final note? My final thought for the day. My final thought to you all is if you were to choose to pause and think who are your enemies, 
what would it take to get into their minds and to try and understand why they're behaving as they are? What are their fears and insecurities? And if you were to succeed in getting into their minds, might it be possible to live without an enemy? And of course, we can transpose these ideas onto the international stage. And there could be a, you know, why we have constructed a narrative in terms of the nation state in which we need an enemy. But that's a whole other question. Thank you very much. I'm going to jump straight in with a question about the sort of feminizing of politics, because essentially you're arguing for a completely different approach, which, you know, politics, geopolitically, geotechnologically, is essentially male-dominated, with the exceptions. We have a woman ambassador in the room at the back, notwithstanding, uh, in international diplomacy. But is it accurate to say that some of these value shifts and perception shifts are in fact gender related do you want to talk a tiny little bit yeah, about that I know I think it's a very very good question that I think it's not by chance that Kathy Ashton is leading these talks and although she's had very bad press because visually they don't like how she looks in the press I think she's been extremely subtle about behind the scenes building relationships and recognizing that in the end you have to deal you have to work towards building trust you have to deal with people's fears and insecurities and i think it's 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 useful to talk about the feminization of conflict and how that might change over time and how that language can actually permeate more into how we think about conflict well i thank you very much i mean i think it's obvious there are massive links between what all three speakers have said, so of course we feel immensely smug about that. But I'm just going to... We have a wonderful audience. That's the whole point about these mornings, is that the audience is as illustrious and idiosyncratic as the panel. So please make your comments. You're all being recorded for posterity, of course. Um, everybody who comes to these events knows that we pick on people and make them talk if they don't volunteer. So... I'm going to ask Stephen Hargrave, the chairman of Reform, to give his view about any or all of what he's just heard. Thank you, Stephen Hargrave. I was struck by this idea that um, we need to get into the uh, mind of our enemies, uh, so, so to speak, in Iran and try to understand where their um, fear of uh, regime change comes from. Um, I'd suggest it comes from us. Uh, the fact is that is our policy, re regime change. And perhaps we might start by getting into our own minds in that respect rather than having to get, get into theirs. Well, I have to say that's absolutely essential. We can't get into other people's minds until we first get into our own and take responsibility for what, how we're behaving and what we're doing. Uh, and a lot of that, it can be political delusion. And Michelle, you would echo that, presumably, because you're essentially arguing that there is a sort of collusion with delusion that we want innocence because that keeps the political status quo or are you um i'm saying <laughs> i'm saying that nobody's able to look at things clearly anymore and if you do you're accused of being silly so there's a there's a joint fogness happening there's a foggy. Yes, I think there is, and I think there's a sort of enormous understanding gap, or really, I suppose, gap of uh, nobody really gives a toss about what's happening to the lower orders. I don't think we, people really care about their people. Uh, so that, that, that there seems to be a, a growing gap between the people at the top and the people at the bottom. I suppose there always has been, but. But it, it seems as if the system is rotten because in order to get to the top, you have to be ruthless enough to stamp on people. And, um, and so it, it automatically, 
the worst people are going to ultimately get to the top, except in a very few exceptions. Are you? Within Iran itself, which is why even the word enemy, you know, sort of, um, I'm not sure it sits totally well with me because, of course, we're really just talking about the few people that have hijacked an entire nation of, of about 70, 80 million people. The average Iranian feels far more disenfranchised than the average Briton, uh, you know, or, or American uh, for a whole variety of reasons going back, going back now uh, decades and so I wouldn't I wouldn't ever use the word enemy to refer to, to an Iranian person and in, even when it comes to the regime I mean the fact is that I think even they realize uh, and we realize that whatever outcome we are going to achieve is going to involve some kind of coexistence in that sense if you frame someone as an enemy now and continuously use that terminology not that you are but you're referring to those who are in the negotiations but um, but then, you know, getting out of that psychology towards saying, okay, now we've agreed on some, some modus vivendi to coexist, that's a very hard psychological leap. So even using the word enemy at all, I think, is actually just a great disservice and creates additional obstacles because ultimately we realize that we have to coexist, particularly in that geography. Iran is, is not a, um, is not a, a landlocked uh, country. You know, it has many neighbors. It, it, it has for millennia coexisted in some way, shape, or form with its neighbors. And whatever outcome we, we, we come out of here. Can I, I can make one point, though, on, on getting inside the, their minds, though, however we frame them. I, I believe it's just as likely that this negotiation is, um, is going so, so poorly and, and each side views the other as having, you know, sort of... Um, uh, sort of uh, irresponsible, you know, intentions, um, because they don't actually have anything. They're nowhere near having a nuclear weapon, and their entire leverage and bargaining position, the Iranians, comes from hiding the fact that they're nowhere near having a nuclear weapon. If they have, if they do not have a nuclear weapon and are nowhere near having a nuclear weapon, then why would anyone care what they think? Why would anyone care what their regional ambitions are? Why would anyone take them seriously? Why would anyone? Why would any Sunni country kowtow to them and fear them? So they actually have to hide what they don't have, not what they do have. And that is, uh, and if for the average person in this room, including myself, who doesn't know the truth, uh, what I've just said is equally or more likely, I believe, to be exactly what's happening than what the media and what Western diplomats have led you to believe, which is that, it, or, the, or what Israeli intelligence agencies have, have asked you to believe, which is that, that their crossing the nuclear threshold is imminent. So I ask you to take both perspectives into account when you judge the situation. Thank you. Well, for those listeners coming halfway through the podcast, uh, we're joined by uh, Parag Khanna, Michelle Hansen, and Gabrielle Rifkin, and we're talking variously about cumulative eras, the grand game of realpolitik, and the innocent outsider, and we're going to have a clutch of points now. I'm James Kidner, director of Coexist. We're an educational charity, and it's very gratifying in branding terms that Parag has used the word no fewer than four times in his preceding paragraph. And I want to point out a point that he was making, because for me, running through all this conversation is a, a quest for empathy. And a lot of you have talked about, in a sense, the sort of binary difficulty, first technologically and in Michelle's terms, this binary difficulty of the innocent outsider versus the malevolent insider. And in Gabrielle's terms, this, this challenge of, of, of looking at ourselves through our enemy's eyes. Now, I don't know if I'm speaking for others in this room, but I, I don't really feel I have enemies. And I don't really feel that Michelle's sort of binary juxtaposition of, of, of bad people at the top and innocent good people at the bottom is terribly helpful. This quest for a, for a clearing away of the fog, we live in fog. And I think that if we're trying to learn about empathy, breaking out of this binary mindset that there is a black and a white, an absolute, a sort of bit and a bite differential between Stephen Heston at the top and everyone else at the bottom is helpful to us. Can, can people sort of tease out some of the points here in trying to escape this binary mentality, which okay. for me hinders the discussion? So binary is bad, according to you? Uh, Peter York, to Michelle's point, I think... I am always worried by people, very clever people, who, who are very much insiders, who say, of course, comma, comma, or we all know. And I was listening on Friday to somebody I enormously admire, and he said, we all know, anyway, every quarter of an hour. And I was thinking, I'm not sure I do know that. And I certainly don't know the assumptions that derive from what we're all supposed to know. And I think it's that sort of argument that goes behind the idea that 
if you're nasty to rich people, they will take their ball away and the nation will collapse. So whether we like it or not, we have to be very, very nice to rich people just in case the nation should collapse and London should collapse instantly if any tax were imposed on anything at all distressing. One more point, Andrew Alexander. Andrew Alexander, who I've always thought of as a sort of funny, waspish, Daily Mail person, has written a very uh, unremarked book which basically says American foreign policy since the war has been unutterable crap and done all of us great harm. The point about this is that he, he dedicates it to his friends in the Tory party and he is a Daily Mail person and he goes from page one, he doesn't do a sort of fancy vignette, funny bit of local colour, he just goes into vertical takeoff saying they got that wrong, they got that wrong and it was um, a combination of um, regime change ambitions, bongo Christianity and absolute ignorance of the minds of the people they were dealing with. I think there's a whole argument about hybrid politics coming on. Uh, Judy, Who is that? Andrew Alexander, <laughs> columnist for Daily Mail. Judy Piatkis, what I'm hearing is uh, fascinating. Uh, thank you, all of you, because you've given me a lot to think about, um, and I hope I have time to think about it. Um, we live in the most incredibly sophisticated world at the moment. And it hasn't been as sophisticated and complex as it is for very long. We've actually only had um, technology at the level that we can all experience for perhaps 15 years. And I think that we don't yet, we haven't yet had time to learn to be leaders, to lead in this incredibly sophisticated, complex society. We've not only got to understand who we are leading, where we want to take them, which direction we should go in, but we also have to lead ourselves. So it may be that as human beings, in the circumstances, we may not be doing too badly. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to ask Michelle to defend the binary model of simplicity, uh, although there's an acknowledgement that we're all in a giant quest for empathy. Uh, and I'm going to ask uh, Parag to, uh, to open up on the, dis the question about leadership in this, in this technical age. And um, perhaps, Gabrielle, you'll talk about Peter York's assertion both that certainty is wrong and that um, it's all the fault of the rich. So, Michelle. Well, I'm not saying that it's absolutely black and white, but uh, I agree with something you said, that the, the bulk of the Iranian people uh, do you not agree with what they're elite are doing? And I have an Iranian friend who says that Ahmadinejad is all mouth and no trousers, mm -hmm. and that the, all that talk about nuclear weapons is just hot air. And I presumably, uh, a lot of the Iranian people feel the same as she does. And as we do here, I feel um, that my government absolutely does not speak for me. I don't agree with them. I don't know anybody who does. I'm sure lots of people do. But, but among my circle, they're not talking on my behalf. I, and so there is a, a great gap. Although you're saying it's not black and white, I think there is enormous disconnect between the people running the show and the bulk of the populations, exactly as you said. And I just feel that um, it's become completely obfuscated and they're sort of mystifying as much as they possibly but can. Michelle, to is, there, is there an argument that when you talk about the people that you know and this view of disconnect, which is fascinating, is there an argument that your circle is in fact not broad enough no, and I that you need to bring in a bit of the old enemy no, into your I mix? I don't mean just middle class grawny ad readers. Right. I mean that, you know, just you checking. just talk to anybody. If you get into a taxi, if you talk to the milkman, if you go to a shop, wherever you go, if you say, oh, isn't this bloody ridiculous? And they'll all be absolutely boiling, furious. And, and they don't feel that they have any power. They're all frustrated. They're all very angry. And it's right, not just my chum. Let's just ask our sample representative in the room, not that it can be visible on a podcast. Do we feel generally, hands up, that there is a general 
indignation going on that things are unfair. Put your hands up if you think that is the case. Okay, that's a lot. Put your hand up if you do not think that is the case. Okay, overwhelming majority agree with Michelle. Moving swiftly on. <laughs> Parag, how are we going to get leaders that understand how to work in this techno right. <laughs> era? And is that right? Can I just say, I'm not, I don't think it's a new phenomenon, this imbalance and, and this show of hands. Uh, my, my second book was on global governance, and it was directly modeled or inspired by uh, Anthony Sampson's book, Who Runs This Place? And it was interesting for me as, as an Waterstones one day. I'd never actually heard of him. I uh, wasn't familiar with British sociology, but, but through, after my PhD here, I did, did get more familiar with it. But reading that book, I realized, wow, you know, Britain is, is not a very large country compared to the United States. It shouldn't be that complicated. And he did this masterful job in this book. And if you remember the book, he has these Venn diagrams throughout showing the overlapping uh, circles of power and institutions, the cabinet, the monarchy, the intelligence services, the media, and, and the accountants, and the tax authority, and so on and so on. And it, was, it was just brilliant portrayal of this almost incomprehensible complexity that we create for or have created for ourselves and this, this uh, constant entropy that we seem unable to reverse and to get a grasp of. And uh, technology seems to only accelerate that kind of phenomenon. But I just wanted to point out that you know, that book is, is at least a decade old. <laughs> And is, is a historical, even older, right? Yeah, it's... 15, it's, uh, right. Oh, okay, so I guess it was a new edition I saw. Mm -hmm. Well, it's still a bestseller, I think, or ought to be. Anyway, um, just to say that it's, we're, not, we're, not, we're not doing a very good job of creating simplicity. I like to think that if anything is going to do it, it, it is going to be some greater role for technology because of the transparency that, that it brings about. I'm really glad you raised the issue of leadership, and I'm really glad that you, that you uh, clarified uh, that, that interest in the issue by pointing out that we need to become become better leaders ourselves. I'll give you the example of the Arab Spring. One of the things that, that annoys me to no end is when people say, when are the new leaders going to emerge out of this Arab Spring? It's a question that people ask all the time. Because they want to know who is that one guy who will rise above, who, who will be elected by Facebook in Egypt to become the new president. And my point is, why are you asking who the new leaders are? Those are the leaders. Why do we have to live in a society where we wait every four, five, six years to elect someone who's our least bad option uh, and then cede all authority to that person. That's not what technology and our co-evolution technology is about. It's about real-time politics of, of self-control uh, more than ever before. Today, here in the United Kingdom and in the United States and in other advanced societies, if you just take Iceland where they use Wikipedia to crowdsource their constitution, uh, you have phenomenon like apps for gov and code for gov and everyone is creating various mechanisms by which you can see in real time what every single member of parliament has voted for, how much they're getting paid, how much money is being allocated out of taxes, to what purpose, and you also have community level empowerment where people are saying we're going to start keeping track of our own budgets and so forth. Technology is enabling this radical transparency into politics, even non-democratic uh, politics. Yeah. Transparency before we, we move on because mm -hmm. what always happens in these things is there's a great acceleration near the end and everybody yeah. wants to pile in. I mean, let's just have a moment talking about Wikipedia. There seems to be evidence last week that somebody was killed as a result of their name being published in the transparency. WikiLeaks, uh, WikiLeaks I said, beg your pardon, no, WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks. Yeah. I mean, there are also pitfalls to transparency, aren't there? I mean, we, we, we do seem to believe that transparency is the savior uh, through technology, but is that, I'm just posing the question, is that right? I, I'm in favor of more transparency I mean, generally, but WikiLeaks there are downsides. Is, is transparency with a small t. I mean, it's, it's data theft, illegal data theft and publication. I mean, that's not the same as talking about transparency as a virtue in, in politics. Uh, so I, I, I wouldn't, I, I don't want to conflate Wikipedia and WikiLeaks by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, but generally speaking, you're saying that the transparency of technology will help liberate some technology. voices and change politics. Uh, Nick, Michelle, do you agree mm -hmm. with that? Ish. Um, ish. Yeah, ish. Yes, in some ways, yes. It sort of can do both, annoyingly. It can confuse and it can uh, give everybody a, a voice, but it also is tremendously muddling sometimes. And also, Wikipedia is not accurate. So going back to the muddle, um, Gabrielle, Peter York's assertion that certainty 
is essentially wrong. Presumably you would agree with that. But he has also made an enemy of the rich, that they are bad. Is that, is that the right approach? Um, I think the world's much more complex than that. Um, as I think it's what Peter's saying, that um, if we've already made up our minds, we tend to be in trouble. It's much harder to listen properly, to learn possibly some new thoughts in which we might change our mind. But this actually creates a lot of anxiety in people because we perhaps have to live with a little more uncertainty and a little more chaos in the world and a lot, little, more, little less knowing. And yet at the same time, we yearn for leadership. We yearn for people to tell us what to do, supposedly to have a better sense of how to organize the world. Well, we do need leadership, but I'm incredibly interested when you talk about the empowerment of the citizen and how we need to learn to be more self-disciplined and the kind of emotional maturing we might need to do to live in this complex world. Um, I think all that territory is incredibly important now. And the truth is, uh, you know, in my consulting room, I've worked with rich and poor. And if you get into their heads, they're in trouble. You know, people's inner lives can be very disturbed and troubled whatever, wherever they are on the spectrum. Okay, we're going to have one more quick round of points and then everybody can discuss what they think um, over coffee if they're live and in this room and over their conversations if they're hearing this on podcast. At the front here, we have somebody who wants to... Henrietta Royal, Fanshawe Haldon. I want to go back a couple of things. One, the, the point that Park made about um, not thinking that Iran has nuclear weapons. There was somebody else who tried to pretend that they had rather nasty weapons. And we know what happened to him. Um, I, this seems to me a highly dangerous... Uh, route to take for Iran, given what happened to Saddam Hussein, and in a sense, therefore also rather dangerous the United States and the rest of us, are we suddenly going to find ourselves in a rather unpleasant war which actually did need to take place? Um, this, this, this thing about having enemies and the need to have enemies, because as far as I can see, the Iraq war happened because Al-Qaeda wasn't a proper enemy and you couldn't fight them with proper troops and therefore Bush looked around for somebody who he could have a proper war with, which arguably was, you know, Saddam Hussein gave, gave himself up as that, that marvellous opportunity and everybody thought it would be a, an easy thing, which it wasn't. So to what extent are people needing enemies in order to coalesce round? Okay, thank you. Brief point over there from Nico and then from Teresa and then we will have to wrap up. So why do we need enemies? Uh, Nico McDonald, co-author of Big Potatoes. Um, I just want to take up Parag's uh, initial introduction, but also just to observe briefly that I think the wiki-ish solution to the politics of distrust of politicians is a technocratic solution to a political problem, and I, I'm not sure those work. Uh, but on your original thesis, I think actually what you described uh, is as it ever was. Britain was a industrial and innovative power before it was a geopolitical power in the 19th century with gunboat diplomacy and arguably became that because we didn't have global markets and because it's a small island with a small internal economy. China can grow internally and benefits from existing globalization. Um, similarly the US, you know, its economic period in the sun was really the 19th century um, and it became a political power and a geopolitical power in the 20th. So I'm not sure anything's really changed there. I think what's different is that in a way Britain and to an extent the US seems to have sort of given up on the future to an extent and China partly because of the nature of the country partly because it needs to because it doesn't have much else to offer its people in terms of you know inclusion and democracy and so on needs to have a vision of the future both economic and more broad and I think it's an interesting time now because the transition in power is taking place between countries which have visions of the future and don't rather than ones which are ascending geopolitically or geotechnologically. Thank you. And final point from the audience at the back. 
Sorry, Theresa Wickham, retail analyst. It's a, quite a simple question, actually, going back to Michelle when you talked about the innocent outsider and you talked about Gulliver. I'm reminded of the fable when we saw the king and everybody praised his wonderful clothes and a child suddenly said, but he hasn't got any clothes on. And everybody then admitted that they'd all been conned. And I don't think this thing about bankers having huge salaries is so much a thing of enemies. I think we're all wondering why we've been conned that somebody is worth 24 million when they haven't actually produced the goods. I, think, I don't think it's envy so much, it's just a sheer frustration of isn't somebody going to say, hang on, what's really happening here? So perhaps I'm in your fog or not in your fog. Well, thank you. I think uh, you can't say we didn't discuss the big picture this morning. Uh, I would really like to thank all of you for coming. Uh, anyone who is listening and in particular live and in the room Parag, Kanna, Michelle Hansen and Gabrielle Rifkin who you can um, talk to afterwards thank you very much